welcome to episode 119 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Krivat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at krivatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Matt Schlegel, founder and principal of Schlegel Consulting. Matt is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, consultant, engineer, and speaker. He started his career as an engineer, and after being promoted into a managerial role, realized the challenge of running effective teams was as important as the technical ones. He went back to the drawing board and discovered a new way to evolve teams in the workplace. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. To improve team effectiveness, Matt began studying the Enneagram in 2002 and started applying it in corporate settings in 2003. In 2004, he began developing the tools that Schlegel Consulting now uses to optimize team-based problem-solving for innovative companies and led to the tools and strategies for work team effectiveness described in his best-selling book, Teamwork 9.0. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Matt Schlegel, consultant, author, speaker. Matt, welcome to the Climate Champions. It is so nice to be here with you, Lee. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to have you on the show. And I'm very excited because I haven't had anybody that was a specialist in team effectiveness. And my entire career, that was a huge focus for me. So I'm excited to hear about it. Right, right. Yeah, it's great to be here to talk about it. I was telling you earlier that my first job was with Tandem Computers and I worked there for many years and they had great open leadership and it kind of set the tone for who I was going to be as an employee and then as a leader because you model kind of I think that first job has a big impact on you. Right, right, exactly. I'm also excited to see how you're going to interlink climate change and team effectiveness and what you do. So I'm super stoked about that. Right. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? You know, I have a science engineering background and I became aware of the, the climate crisis when I was going through college back in the 80s. It's interesting when you're when you study engineering and you study the math of engineering, there's that variable of time. And when you put time in, you could start to predict the future and you could see, you know, the trends and how things were playing out. And it wasn't good back in the 80s. It wasn't good. And we had Carl Sagan, you know, addressing Congress and saying we really need to be doing something. So we all knew that it was a problem then. And so that's really what got me first aware that there's an issue. And then, you know, life starts to happen and you meet a girl and you have a family and you get a job and blah, 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 and you, you go down your path. And meanwhile, just watching and seeing, you know, are, are we doing what we need to do to really address this crisis? And as we progressed through different presidential administrations, it got better, it got worse, it got better, it got worse, it got worse, you know, and I'm like, we're not 
acting with the urgency that we really need to. You know, and meanwhile, you know, I, I had an engineering career. I had an engineering management career. And I was getting interested in finding ways to get teams to be more effective as an engineering manager. And I started studying, you know, leadership, you know, different tools and tricks of the trade to, to get teams to be more effective. And along the way, I discovered this system called the Enneagram. Are you familiar with the Enneagram? I don't know if I'm familiar with that specific one, but I am familiar with Myers-Briggs. Is that the right name? Right. And some similar ones that I've done in my career. Right. And so by the time, you know, I came across the Enneagram years into my management career, I um, had already been exposed to Myers-Briggs and DISC and Strength Finders and all those other ones that, you know, we, we get exposed to as engineering managers. And when I first encountered it, I was like, okay, here's another one of these systems that is good for getting teams to know one another, which I think is always a, a good thing to do. And it's really presented more as a personality system than anything else. And as I started to use it, I found that it was more predictive of the different types of behaviors that I would see in the workplace and the different types of interactions that I would see in the workplace. And it was um, more prescriptive. Like you could say, well, you know, maybe if you try approaching this person this way, it would be more effective. And then they'd try it and it's like, wow, that's great. So um, the other nice thing about the Enneagram is it speaks to underlying motivation. So as an engineering manager or a leader of any type, you know, you really want to know what the underlying motivators are for your teammates. So there's nothing more powerful than the Enneagram that I've found. And so after using this system for a few years, my engineering brain started asking different questions about it, like, why are the Enneagram types numbers? Why aren't they letters or colors or animals or you know whatever that are often used in these systems? And it turns out that the reason why they're numbers is because they are describing the order of a process. It is the process by which humans solve problems, one through nine. So there's, there are nine types and it's one through nine. For those familiar with the Enneagram, so type one. Type one is sometimes called the perfectionist. They're the ones who said, hey, that's not right. It shouldn't be like that. It should be like this, right? Very detail-oriented and acutely aware when things aren't matching up with their instinctual expectations. And so what's the first step in problem solving? Hey, that's not right. It shouldn't be like that. It should be like this. Once I discovered this aspect of the Enneagram that's also essentially a human problem solving process, I started using it with my teams and it was just amazingly effective at getting teams to coalesce around challenging problems that they didn't think otherwise they could solve. And I had so much success with this that I ended up launching a consulting practice around it. And after doing that for a number of years and just having so much 
success with this method, I thought, you know, I should write a book about this method, this aspect of the Enneagram that isn't really otherwise known because most people know it as the personality system. So that's what I wrote my book, Teamwork 9.0, about. And so now this is a long way of getting back to the climate is as I'm writing my book, still with that underlying sensation that we really need to be doing something about the climate, you know, the subtext for the book is how can we use this system that ties human personalities with problem solving to help us solve the climate crisis? You know, I wrote the book, published it March 2020, right as we're going into pandemic. The book tour was a virtual book tour, of course. I wasn't traveling then. And then in the last year or so, I said, okay, now's the time to really start to apply what I've learned from problem solving to the climate crisis. And when I look at where we are in the, the climate crisis with respect to that framework, to me, humanity is in step two of problem solving. So step one I mentioned was the, you know, hey, there's a problem. It shouldn't be like that. It should be like that. So I think we all know now that there's a problem. We are, you know, having a, a more and more unstable climate. And we know that we want to have a stable climate because that's how we evolved in a stable climate. And now we're putting the earth into a, a situation that, you know, we're, is, you know, unprecedented for humanity. So if we could stop that and bring the, the climate back into more stable range, that would be a good thing. So I think that would be the desired vision. So next step two is who cares? As soon as you care about the problem, you start to have feelings about it. Those feelings are the thing that compel you into action. But if you don't have feelings about the problem, for whatever reason, you won't be compelled to action. And this is one of the things I love about this particular problem solving process is that it explicitly takes into account human emotions. Now, you know, you've been in technology, you know, you've worked with technical teams before and you've used many problem solving processes yourself and they almost explicitly eliminate any thought of emotions <laughs> on almost on purpose because a lot of technical people don't like to deal with emotions. But the nice thing about this process is that it does let us know, you know, how human emotions are playing into problem solving. And so as we now are in this step two, it seems to me that the biggest challenge that we have right now, all of us in the climate movement, is to just get more people to care. If more people cared, there would be more political will. And of course, that's what you and I are doing right now as we're both trying to get more people right. to care and explain what's going on. I right. totally get that. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And there's a lot of forces in the world that are really trying to distract us from facing climate reality in as much as we're not thinking about the problem and it's off our radar screen and we're not having feelings about it, we're not going to do anything. 
and the longer we don't do anything, one, it benefits these forces that are trying to distract us. Money. And, and two, it gets us closer and closer to a cliff that it's going to be hard to pull back from. I jokingly said money, but also power, right? Of course, of course. It's money, money and power um, that are you know, deliberately trying to distract us. So this is the really fascinating thing that I've been grappling with essentially for the last year is one really understanding what forces are preventing us from having feelings. And then two is how to get people to start to have those feelings and start to engage in a way that moves them into action. It is just so fascinating and fraught, as you know, with, with emotions. Yeah, my next question is, how do you convince people that don't believe the data or don't believe the facts that there is climate change? And it seems to me that this would really help you to do that. What would be your answer to that? I would say that it's not the low-hanging fruit. If you go to Texas and you say, hey, climate crisis, that's a big problem. No offense to Texas. I'm just using this as an example. They might say, hey, what about China? And what about India? I mean, obviously, they're the gross polluters. And then you go to somebody in California who's like totally understands climate and believes that, you know, there's a problem. And you say, hey, what do you think about the climate crisis? Yeah. Yeah. What about those Texans? When are we going to get them to do something? To me, it's the exact same thing. Everybody wants to put the problem off on somebody else. People who are really entrenched in climate denialism, let's not start there. Let's actually start with the people who believe that we have a problem, that climate is a problem, and we need to start working collectively on that. Work with them first to see if you can get them to move into action. It's a, it's a lot lower hurdle to get them, but it's still a big hurdle because when you really start to have people face climate reality, there's an emotional reaction that you're going to have. And we can talk about the different emotional reactions that people have. In general, it's going to be anger, grief, sadness, or anxiety. Those are the big three. Everybody has a starting point, and the Enneagram actually tells us about you know, how each Enneagram type will start. And, but then once you've actually engaged with that starting point feeling and you start to allow yourself to move into the space of climate reality, then you will go through all of them. And I liken it to a grieving process. What's the first step in grieving? It's denial, right? So, you know, and then once you get past denial, you're going to move into, you know, all the subsequent steps of that grieving process until you get to the end, acceptance. And then once you're at acceptance, you can move forward and really start to make progress on doing something about it. And I, I don't know, I'd love to hear your story, but I, I found that over the last year as I stepped into this, I went through a grieving process because I started to realize what's at stake and what it really means for me to give up 
the lifestyle that I've had that is essentially causing the crisis and what that means to give that up and then move into a lifestyle where I'm no longer contributing to the crisis. And I think that's really difficult for a lot of people, even people who believe in that climate is a problem. I'm generally a pretty positive guy, but sometimes when I'm on this show, I interview somebody who, like a scientist, who explains to me what's going on and how we really can't reverse it very easily or well, and that some things are just done and they're bad. So when I have one of those discussions, I get kind of down and I'm down for a while until I can get it out of my head and look at some of the positives. One reason I have the show, it's not just to look at the good things, but when I look at the good things, when I have solution providers that are working on ways to help mitigate climate change, it's very helpful to my emotions because I suddenly feel, hey, we can get out of this. There are ways. And I'm hoping I share that with my listeners, that they hear it and they understand as well. Right, right. And you, you bring up a really good point because what happens with most people when they engage with their feelings, they work through this process, then they find something that is aligned with their skills and talents that they can direct their energy at. And what I find is that, let's say, Lee, that you're Enneagram type seven for whatever reason. And Lee, you know, steps into the climate reality, he has his feelings, and then he moves into an activity that is aligned with Enneagram type seven, in which he can essentially use that activity to process feelings. And what you're doing right now with this podcast is very Enneagram type seven. And here's the good news is that everybody who has had feelings is moved into one of those areas, right? So the the threes, the type threes are starting companies, the type fours, they're the artists, they're creating climate art. The type fives are, are scientists and they're doing all the science to support this. The type sixes are the, like the city planners and, and risk managers and resilience people and they're doing all that work. And the sevens are like you and they're communicating and the eights are like, come on, let's get to action. And, you know, so every Everybody is actually starting to jump into all of these different activities. And this is, to me, the most hopeful thing is that once we collectively get past step two, because we're collectively, we're kind of stuck at step two. But once we get past step two, since everybody else has already started to lay the groundwork and foundation for all the other steps, we can move around really quickly, I think. Let me ask a question about these numbers. Yeah. Sometimes when I take these other tests, I get a number. I'm on the border of a whole bunch of things usually. One question would have changed it. So I don't know how much faith to put in them. Right. You said I'm a seven, so I'm a communicator. And I will tell you that I was not a communicator for many years of my life, but I wanted to be. Okay. And so I pushed against what made me happy and comfortable. And now I'm very comfortable, more comfortable than most, but it took a lot of work. And I know a lot of people that have pushed against their numbers. That's what I'm going to use. The phrase I'm going to use based on what you said. Yeah. What what do you think about that? Pushing against your weak spots, the numbers where you're not good at, but to be successful, you need to push at those numbers. 
you need to be good at certain things, even though it goes against what the Enneagram would say. Right. Is that something that's okay and good? Is it possible? What are your thoughts? At the highest level, I would say that all Enneagram types have more or less ease of access to the other types. And I don't know if you're a type seven, but let's just kind of throw that. Or we can use me. I'm a type six. So, um, you know, type sixes, I have ease of access to a type three behavior or type nine behaviors. I also have um, pretty ease of access to the types on either side of the six. So the type five and the type seven, right? So all of those are pretty easy for me to access. And some of the other ones are more or less easy for me to access. And there's some that are really difficult for me to access. And so having that framework and knowing yourself and knowing what you're good at being able to step into and what you're not so good allows you to partner with people who compliment you. You know, that's, that's essentially the point of my book is, you know, is to figure out how to uh, one, you know, within this framework, knowing we need to move through all these steps in problem solving, you know, how do we make sure that we get teams to move through these smoothly, not skip steps so that, you know, we have to go back to them or, or get stuck in them because we don't have enough energy in that particular step step and so we're not or we have too much energy you know we're we just want to you know like paralysis by analysis that that's getting stuck in step five you know it's like i just want to do my analysis and you never move to the next step so this is a framework for understanding that for leaders and project managers who are moving teams through this knowing you know where you are in that process allows you to better say okay we spent enough time on this activity time to move to the next thing and then, you know, just get people to kind of move into that next one. And I give a lot of, you know, tips and tricks for, for doing that. But th I think as leaders and project managers, that's, that's an important ability to have. Humankind has been pretty good at solving what I'm going to call small or isolated problems where you can have one person, it gets a little harder if you have a team, it gets a lot harder if you have a whole company. If you have a country, you kind of need a war. I mean, some crazy crisis to really unite people. I can't think of when worldwide everybody got on the same page or most people got on the same page to change something. Right. I would love to hear your thoughts about how this kind of a test can be used to get the world right. rallied around a mission like this. Right. Uh, great question. And what I've thought about is uh, previous movements and what were the precipitating factors or, or key factors that um, mobilized people to make transformational change. And I've distilled it down to two ingredients, an injustice and an existential threat. And once there is a obvious injustice and people feel an existential threat, so both, both of these things, right? Injustice causes people to have a feeling and an existential threat causes people to have a feeling. So you put those two key ingredients together and people mobilize. And there's lots of examples of that in every country of when you put those two key ingredients, people are out on the street and they're mobilized. 
when we look at the climate movement, right, there is a definitely a growing sense of an injustice, you know, and there's a lot of climate uh, justice movements. And clearly, there are communities that are more impacted than others, you know, by the fossil fuel industry, and they have to take the brunt of the pollution and the, uh, the effects of climate change more so than, than other communities. And so that's clearly an injustice. And in as much as we can move into that in space of injustice, that is one of the key ingredients here. And more and more, as more and more people are going to be impacted by climate change, I think that's going to become more and more obvious. And then the other one that's going to become more and more obvious is the existential threat. You know, so we're, you know, seeing terrific wildfires. We're now seeing water resources drying up. We're, you know, seeing saltwater ingress in, into farmlands. We're, we're seeing things that now are going to start to impact people's livelihoods, if not an immediate threat of a, of a fire or a flood. And in as much as, you know, people are starting to connect the dots between that existential threat and climate change, you know, that would be the other precipitating event to really start to coalesce political will for transformational change. What I hear you saying as a challenge to me about not having a worldwide movement ever is that it's never been the case where the entire world had an existential threat and was seeing injustice but we could see that now. And in fact, we are starting to see that now. We are definitely are seeing it. We're speaking from the U.S., right? And I think U.S., you know, especially corporate media, they deliberately try to minimize the obvious effects of climate change. And it makes it more difficult for people to connect the dots with, you know, what's happening in their lives. Last night, I was awoken by a downpour. Now, it is August in California, and we don't get rain in August. And I'm woken up at four o'clock in the morning with a downpour as a monsoon, you know, storm blows through. <laughs> and it's just stunning, you know, and I think the signs and the symptoms are all around us now that things are really out of whack. As people start to, to realize this, then I think, you know, more and more people will start to realize we need to take action. Last year in the Portland area, we hit 116 degrees. Right. Never happened before. Right. It snowed in April. That was crazy. Right. And this summer, we went through over a week of 90 plus degree weather, which had never happened before. Right. Right. I think other countries are more open to having these types of conversations in the media, um, particularly, you know, in Europe, you know, you see much more mention and discussion um, in their mainstream media about climate change. Not that, you know, Europe is that much further ahead of us um, than we are here, um, but at least they're starting to have those, those conversations. And it's, it's something that we can look to, but I think my sense is that it will be harder in the U.S. to have those types of conversations because the owners of the corporate media outlets are very entrenched in the status quo system. And so 
they don't have a real strong interest in talking about the types of transformational changes we need to make because it will directly impact you know their their ability to you know profit off of us we're in trouble is what you're saying <laughs> no I, I you know so so yes and no right we need to just be aware of the environment that we're in when we're problem solving you know if you just look at this you know analytically you know i'm an engineer you're an engineer you know if we just look at this analytically you know the first thing that you really need to do is understand the root causes of the problem and i'm not talking about now this the science problem i'm talking about the the social problem the moving into step two and what are the root causes that are preventing us from starting to have these feelings you know another thing about americans is that we do not put a lot of emphasis on emotions. Um, I think culturally thinking about or, or dealing with emotions can be um, seen as a sign of weakness. Having emotions is a sign of weakness. And so it's really minimized culturally. And that's what I find, you know, when I have, you know, conversations with people and I try to kind of, you know, move them into this space, you can just see the resistance. You can see them starting to have the feelings and then not wanting to go there, right? And so we, we do have this cultural effect of just not being able to engage with our emotions that is also preventing us from really moving into that step two. Again, the way to get over that, of course, is if that person were feeling an existential threat or a, a deep injustice, they would move in, right? But until, until they're experiencing that themselves, then it's hard for them to move in because those emotions are so fraught. It sounds like it's difficult to get people to get there. Can you talk about your biggest success or the success you're most proud of leveraging this methodology? Right. There, there's this phrase in Silicon Valley, I'm sure you're aware of, eat your own dog food, right? So you, 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 you build a product and then you, you use it yourself and see. And so I've been doing a number of different activities to help people engage with their feelings. So one of the activities that I'm doing, like you do, I interview climate leaders and I ask them three questions. I say, how are you feeling about the climate crisis? How are those feelings influencing and informing your leaderships and your action? And then what advice would you give to others having feelings about the climate? And what I'm trying to do with this is create a bunch of healthy examples for people to see and, and realize that one, it's okay for me to have feelings. And here's, here's a leader who is now talking about feelings. And so if they're talking about it, maybe I can talk about it too. They had feelings that compelled them to action, you know, and if I have enough examples, hopefully I can, you know, find somebody, an example that resonates with, with that particular person and their particular feelings so that they can see, oh, there is a way I can process these feelings in a healthy, constructive way that moves me beyond, you know, whatever bad feelings I'm having and more into a place where I'm using the energy from those feelings to do some constructive, positive activity that will help mitigate the climate crisis. 
A couple of years ago, I interviewed Nair Todd Gloria of San Diego on my podcast, and I talked a little bit about my feelings about the pandemic at that time. Right. And then he shared his feelings, and I have to tell you, I was blown away at the time he was running for mayor, but just that he would talk about how it is affecting him, I thought was awesome. Right. Right. And difficult. Yes. Yes. And it's important. Lee, we all are going to become climate leaders. Every single one of us on the planet is going to become a climate leader. We don't have a choice. The climate crisis is going to overwhelm all of us. And we're all going to be faced with strong feelings. And, you know, and in as much as we can channel those strong feelings into healthy, positive outcomes rather than negative, destructive outcomes, that will be better for all of us. And, you know, you can already see this happening. There's a term out there called ecofascism. And I know it's um, that term is fraught and it has a lot of, you know, different um, ways of looking at it. And a lot of people are co-opting it. But, you know, one way to look at it is that it's an individual who is starting to have feelings about the climate, but they're channeling it into more destructive avenues rather than, you know, constructive community building avenues. I think this is another thing that we just need to be aware of. There's going to be a broad range of emotional responses as people start to have climate feelings. And we, we want to find avenues for people to, to channel them in, into, you know, healthy, healthy outcomes. What is your vision for the future of the earth? Do you think that the earth is going to be just fine? And I mean the people on the earth, right. as well as the earth, or do you think we're in deep trouble? I do think that there is um, a pivotal point in 2024, the election in 2024. I think what happens in the U.S., of course, it ripples throughout the world. And in as much as um, the U.S. can demonstrate leadership, it will um, serve as a beacon to the rest of the world that there is hope and people will want to take more action and, and follow us. And this is my goal, is to help people become positive leaders. And that pivotal point in 2024 really comes down to, are we going to take a more uh, democratic approach to solving the climate crisis or a more authoritarian approach? My hope is that, you know, based on current you know, U.S. politics, the democratic approach seems to yield better results for addressing the climate change. You know, we're, we're speaking now on the day that, you know, President Biden uh, signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is ostensibly the, the biggest single climate action legislative package ever in human history. So, you know, we can celebrate that. And I think it's, it, we need to note that it happened under, you know, this administration and it didn't happen under the previous administration. And if we go back to the politics of the previous in administration, I think there's very little expectation 
that we would continue to take the aggressive action that we need at a national level. I haven't heard that before, the idea that 2024 is such a key turning point, a pivotal point for the world, because the U.S. impacts the world so much. Right. And because it dictates the policy for four years, the next four years. Right. And because we're already seeing so many climate issues now, it's just difficult to imagine what it would be if we didn't keep going hard and strong for another six years. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, we essentially took the last four years off, the last four critical years off. And now we're moving forward again in these four years. And we can't afford to take another four years off. We need to keep moving forward. And, you know, based on the current politics, that's what I would imagine would happen. So that's why I think at a national level and at a global level, it really is a pivotal point. Now, that being said, I know that there's really not a lot I can do to influence national politics. I kind of had a, a thought, you know, when President Obama got elected that, oh, Thankfully, we're finally going to do something on climate. And we did very little during his eight years. It was really a wake-up call for me how entrenched these systems are and how little can be done at the national level. And, it, and anything that can be done will happen at a glacial pace, you know, with lots of compromises to the fossil fuel industry to get anything done. So meanwhile, what we can all be doing is acting locally and um, working you know, with ourselves and our families and our communities to decarbonize. And so I I'd like to just share a little bit about that with you because it's really, it, it answers one of your, your previous questions about how emotionally fraught this work can be. One, I, I did the emotional work to the point where I realize, okay, I am going to do everything I can to stop burning fossil fuels. I have completely electrified my home now, completely off of gas. I've turned off the gas line on my home. It's no, no more molecules being burned in the house. I have an electric vehicle, so I am not going to gas stations anymore. And I know even that could be fraught, so I, I ride my bike as much as I can. And then I ask my family, who are the, are they willing to make that same commitment? And I'm talking my immediate family, my wife and my kids. That's a tough conversation, right? I promise you, I have more influence over my wife and my kids than I do over the president of the United States, ostensibly. So now I have these conversations with my immediate family and I try to get them to appreciate how important it is for us to stop burning fossil fuels. And I get a lot of difficult conversations and I get a lot of pushback on that. What do you mean? I can't travel to Europe anymore? What are you talking about? Of course I'm going to travel to Europe. You know, I'm like, okay, you, you do you. And that's where it really has hit me hard that Americans are addicted to our high energy fossil fuel lifestyle. It's just incredible how this energy dense material that we have harvested from the earth allows us to get into a 
cylinder of metal and hurtle through the atmosphere <laughs> at hundreds of miles an hour. It's stunning, right? That there's that much energy in that material that we can do these extraordinary things and they're exhilarating and they're fun and they give us all these chances to go explore the world. And in the meantime, we're complicit in polluting the world and causing it to become unlivable. When you start to you know, have people connect the dots on that, it's like, oh, I, I've got to give up flying? Are you kidding me? These, these are really difficult discussions. And so as I've worked through this and, and tried to figure out, okay, where can I make progress locally? And where am I going to run into some challenges? And the one thing that I landed on is heat pump water heaters, right? Now, if you go to somebody and you say, hey, what brand of water heater do you have? <laughs> what size water heater do you have? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody has an emotional connection to their water heater. All they want is hot water to take a shower or to wash the dishes. So it's really low hanging fruit to go after a huge source of fossil fuel pollution. What's the most banal way to destroy the planet? Heating up water, using fossil fuels to heat up water, right? We don't need to do that because heat pump water heaters are way more efficient and in as much as you can source your electrons from renewable sources and increasingly, you know, in California and in my community, they're almost all renewables. So I'm heating up water with renewable electrons. And so I'm not burning fossil fuels. And I think that's, that's a low hanging fruit that people won't have a lot of pushback on rolling out as they you know, have to exchange their water heaters. So that's, that's one of my, my, my current approaches. It's interesting because I think you hit on one of the conversations I often have a lot on the podcast, and that is people tend to be on one side or the other, although more and more people are in between, whether it's going to take technology to help solve this problem or whether it's going to take sacrifice and change on the part of people and I think your heat pump example, even when you said you have a lot of renewables, kind of shows that the people part is super difficult. And the way to be successful with people might have to rely on technology like a heat pump and renewables, which are technological advances. Right, right. It's a way for people, because I think everybody deep down inside their instincts are telling them that there's something wrong. And most people probably have this feeling that, you know, yeah, I, I should be doing something, but I love to go to Europe. So I don't want to I don't want to give that up. And so they may be carrying around a little guilt for doing that. And so this is an easy way for them to assuage that guilt, you know, by, you know, not burning fossil fuels every day in their home. So we need to all be doing everything. And as more and more people, you know, start to face, you know, that the urgent crisis level emergency that we're in, they'll do more. But in the meantime, let's get people to do the things 
that they, they, they feel comfortable doing now, right? And we'll just get them co to come in more and more. Yeah, we need people to understand, feel the urgency, make the changes, but the easier we can make it to make those changes through technology, the better. Right, right. Well, yes, and technology certainly will help the people who are having trouble giving up their lifestyle. And then for, for those people like me, who, and again, it's, you know, I mentioned the, the term before, eating your own dog food, right? I wanted to put myself through this. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to know what everybody will be going through. Um, because the people who have, you know, take themselves through this process and get to the other side, they're going to be kinder, more compassionate, and more able to essentially uh, help people as a, a Sherpa through that emotional journey to get to the other side as we all go through it, because we all will go through it at one point or another. It's inevitable. And so we just need to be aware that it's coming and start to work towards helping people work through that process. So yes, there is a technological component to it, but there's also a huge emotional component to it. And there's also going to be a transformation in lifestyle component to it as well. The other thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, how to instill a sense of urgency in this, right? So our media will not do that. Our media will not instill a sense of urgency in this. So what other things can we do to get people to feel that sense of urgency? And there is, there is one other aspect that I'm really starting to see, and that is a generational component to this. Because people who are already you know, mid-career and beyond and older, we're somewhat entrenched in, in our lifestyles and our thinking. And, you know, when we grew up in a, an era of, you know, infinite possibilities and infinite growth, and that just seems the norm to us. Whereas I think younger generations who are growing up with climate reality are, you know, having a very different experience. They realize that there are limits and that they won't have the same access to Earth's pleasant resources that, that we've enjoyed. So now you're seeing this um, intergenerational conflict arise. And there's a really great book called um, Generation Dread that was just published by Dr. Brittany Ray, who really focuses on this aspect of the climate crisis. And what she is seeing is that young people are very aware of what needs to happen. And bottom line is, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. They get it. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. And they go to school and they understand that we need to stop burning fossil fuels and fossil fuel burning is causing all these problems. And then they go home and, you know, and they probably go home in a gas car and then, you know, they might go out and have a steak dinner and then they might talk about, you know, their trip to Europe over the summer, you know. And so kids are living this life of cognitive dissonance. So they're living a lifestyle that is inconsistent with 
the values they have for a habitable biosphere. And, and it's literally driving our kids mad. It's driving them crazy. I think that children that went to school 25 years ago learned about climate change and how it one day would impact the earth. And children now are experiencing those impacts. Right. So it's much bigger to them even than children that are in their late 20s, early 30s now that do care about climate change, the next generation even more. Right. And increasingly so, right? Like I said, it's, just, it's, it's going to just sweep over all of humanity. It's more or less a generational sweep now, but it's going to impact everybody. But my point here is for parents, right, the health of our children is, you know, of paramount concern. And one of the things that parents can do to help their kids you know, not have that high level sense of, of cognitive dissonance is to start to live a lifestyle that's consistent with the values of a habitable planet. And I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of this now, and there, I'm, I'm expecting there'll, there'll be a lot more evidence. But kids, you know, with parents who are working on climate solutions and actively working on the problem, I think would tend to be better and have better mental health than kids who are living, living in cognitive dissonance. It might even be better for kids to just have a normal childhood if their parents are working on climate solutions. And I think that is one of the things that parents can start to realize is that the more they put into mitigating the climate crisis, the better it will be for their kids and their kids' mental health. And so, you know, that's just one aspect of this challenge that I think might increase a sense of urgency, especially with parents. That was great advice. Do you have any other advice for our listeners? That's a great question. I would suggest that anybody who is having feelings about the climate crisis let yourself have those feelings. Just allow yourself to feel. And then what do those feelings, you know, how are they informing you? What are they telling you to do? And try to tap into that internal innate energy that you have that is telling you that something must be done and then find where your passion is, you know, the thing you love to do because we all need to do everything. There is a place for everybody, everybody's talents. And in as much as you can take your energy and your passions and then start to move that towards a lifestyle and a world that does not burn fossil fuels, the sooner we do that, the sooner we can start to tip down the number of carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere and methane molecules in the, the atmosphere, because that's what we need to do. We need to, we need to start to bring those down. They're still trending up. We need to get them to start trending down. So, so if you can focus your energy and your passion towards not burning fossil fuels and not emitting those, those particles, then 
that is going to be good for everybody. I love the message of do what you can do because we're all different and we all have different skills. We all have different passions. I love that. Right. And this is why, you know, the key to problem solving, to collective problem solving is to having a common vision, right? So it's, it's two sides of the same coin the problem statement and the goal statement. It's essentially we're trending towards an uninhabitable planet. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is we want a habitable planet. And to get a habitable planet, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. So in as much as we can have that shared vision that we must stop burning fossil fuels and we all start directing our passions and our energies in whatever way, towards that common goal, then we will get there. We will get there. Do you have any questions for me? My question is, would you join me for a climate leaders interview? I would love to have you on my podcast and really talk about feelings. I'd be happy to. Oh, thank you. And then what is your impression of, of this framework of understanding where we are in the climate crisis through the lens of problem solving in general, and then people's emotional reactions specifically. I could say it very succinctly. You convinced me and I want to know more. Well, thank you. Thank you. To me, I'm a logical guy. I'm an engineer. And dealing with the emotional part of problem solving, if you asked me 20 years ago that that's what my focus would be on, it would be, no, I, I like electrons. I, li I, like, I like leading electrons, <laughs> not emotions. But it really is a fascinating challenge. And now, you know, after just thinking through it logically, it's, it's the most important challenge of, of our, our era. So, well, thank you for, for appreciating it. And I look forward to continuing conversations with you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? bring up climate. Bring up climate in every conversation that you're in. Because if you don't bring it up, nobody else will. So one of the things that I've done now is I attend every city council meeting. And um, they, they happen on Monday evenings. And our city of Palo Alto, we have a climate goal. And I remind our city council members of the urgency of the situation and the need for us to meet the goal that we have set out to meet. I look through the agenda on, you know, every week and there's never any mention of climate. So I know if I don't go there and just in the public comments, remind them we're in a climate crisis and we need to act urgently, they will just completely not hear it and not, not think about it. So that's another piece of advice that I would give everybody is to just make sure that it does come up in conversation. When it rains in the middle of the night, in the middle of summer, climate change. Just remind people. Thank you so much for being on the show. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a rap. You're an engineer, so on logic, you have a reliant. You went to college where you studied science the results of other personality tests you feel they got people in a jam but the awesome answers you got from this one so you love enneagram sometimes teamwork can be such a mess but you use enneagram to help teams coalesce 
You think that the future may be quite dour because there are forces against us like money and power. I like to communicate. I scream to the heavens. Hey, everybody join me, all you sevens. When you have deep climate injustice, you know what you get. You get change if you also have existential threat. Like a true engineer, you ensured that your methodology was good. That's why you are eating your own dog food. We need they, we need him, and we need her. Everybody has to become a climate leader. You believe that democracy will get us a better climate score and that we're going to have a pivotal moment in 2024. People don't like to move at the speed of a turtle. That's why we get in a metal tube and we hurdle. One of my tastiest treats is a lox with a bagel. Thank you so much for being on my show, Matt Schlegel. <laughs> Oh my goodness. That was the best summary of a talk I've ever heard. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that was awesome. Matt described climate change as the most important challenge of our era and cautioned us to bring up climate. Bring up climate in every conversation that you're in, because if you don't bring it up, nobody else will. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Matt gave us a unique perspective on dealing with climate change. Allow yourself to feel. Listen to your feelings and let them guide your actions. Tap into the innate energy telling you that something must be done and find a way to help that you love to do. There's a place for everybody's energy and passion in the fight to mitigate climate change. <laughs>